Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Ranoff, and here with me today is Marianne Dunlap, an adult practitioner at Providence Medical Group in Oregon. And today we're answering your questions about health myths and getting expert answers to some of your biggest questions. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from listeners via social media. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc, that's hashtag Talk with a Doc, for a chance to hear your questions on our episodes. Before before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. All right, well, let's get started by welcoming back our expert today, Mary Ann Dunlap. Thanks for joining us again. You are welcome. It's good to be here. You're a crowd favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we're talking about myths, right? And what people think they know, what maybe our old wives' tales, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So let's pick back up and talk about, is cholesterol bad for you? What's the difference between good and bad? So... Overall, the latest thinking, and I'm going to just say the latest thinking because we are evolving constantly on cholesterol and cholesterol issues and is cholesterol bad for you and, you know, how much is bad for you, et cetera, et cetera. So overall, cholesterol is not bad for you. Um, In fact, we need it for lots of things within our body. It helps us to make cell membranes and it just, it, it does a lot of important functions. Uh, It helps us to make hormones within our Mm -hmm. system. Um, The problem is, is there is some association with um, excessive amounts of cholesterol and maybe uh, excessive amounts of bad types of cholesterol that may lead to some increased risk of heart attack and stroke. Oh. Yeah. So again, um, there's there's even controversy around that in regards to is there something in our system, like inflammation, for instance, that sort of turns cholesterol bad in our in our bodies? So that's where the research, I think, is focusing a lot about, is trying to get down to more specifics about um, if you have a, a bad, bad cholesterol, so the LDL is considered the bad cholesterol. Okay. If you have an elevated bad cholesterol, um, is that necessarily going to be a problem for you within your body? And that's where I think the research is focusing because there are people that have bad cholesterols uh, that don't develop heart attack and stroke, and then there's people who do, and then there's people with pretty average cholesterols that that also develop heart attacks and stroke. So they're really trying to pinpoint that. Overall, right now, the state of the thinking is for most folks, um, you know, in their diet, eating excessive amounts of cholesterol or eating cholesterol in general, not monitoring it per se, is okay. You don't necessarily need to monitor the amount of cholesterol you're taking in. Um, For people with known heart disease, that may change a little bit, and they may recommend a lower cholesterol diet or cholesterol-lowering medications. And other people at high risk for heart attack and stroke, they may also make those recommendations. But for the general healthy person, they're not necessarily recommending limiting cholesterol in your diet per se. Mediterranean diet has been shown to be um, a really great diet for overall heart and vascular health. That's all your blood vessels, you know, in the brain can cause stroke or in the heart can cause heart attack. Um, And so they, a lot of cardiologists do recommend the Mediterranean diet, and that is a lower cholesterol type diet, and it has been shown to reduce risk of heart attack and stroke. So, you know, there's probably something there, but overall the biggest issue is what your body makes itself. So genetics, big factor here. 
Thanks, so, mom. Thanks, dad. Right. So that's a, that was a much more serious than some of our other health myths. But <laughs> that one's a tough one. I have to honestly say, we're in a state of really trying to continue to learn more and more about cholesterol. I would say really ask your provider about that for your for your particular circumstances as a as a patient or a client. Ask what you know my cholesterol is what does it mean to me mm-hmm. in my state of health with my risk factors? You know, do I have diabetes? That's an right. increased risk factor, right. things like that. Um, and then and then go from there. Um, but overall, if you're pretty healthy, you probably don't need to massively limit your cholesterol in your diet. Good to know. Yeah. Oh, what about Cheerios? Isn't Cheerios famous for lowering your cholesterol? Does that happen? So <laughs> there is some evidence that eating higher... At least Cheerios tells me that. <laughs> oats, oats based on higher fiber um, okay. can bind up some cholesterol in the system. Oh, and okay. even some medications we've used in the past have had a binding effect on cholesterol um, to reduce overall cholesterol within the system. We have a lot to learn about cholesterol, but as yeah. it goes right now, I definitely think people following the guidance of their individual practitioners on this is really important. Perfect. I like it. And we'll keep letting you know as we learn new right? stuff. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about our station is that we do always kind of come up with what's trending and what's new and what's right. innovative. Yeah. And I think it's really being transparent about telling people that there's a lot that we don't, that we're yeah. really looking at right now with cholesterol. It's important. It's a hot topic. It's important. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, um, one topic we got a lot of questions about is snoring. Um, Mm -hmm. If I snore, do I have sleep apnea? Um, Not necessarily, but it is a good indicator that you should probably get checked out. Mm. Um, There is just primary snoring disorders, which can be just created by... deviated septums mm-hmm. and other other issues um, but it really is important I think if you do note that you snore or other people note that you snore it's probably not a bad idea to talk to your provider about that and see whether a sleep study either in a sure. sleep uh, lab or at home sleep studies would be a good idea for you oh and if it changes right if you've never snored your whole life and all of a sudden you're snoring yeah and people will notice that a lot unfortunately um, with with weight gain uh-huh. um, I noticed it with when I with pregnancy mm-hmm. you know <laughs> these, these sorts weight of gain. things exactly yeah <laughs> and, and it does and it may alter so you know again you may have an episode where it happens and then it then it doesn't you know even with colds and things like that but if it's a persistent issue um what about um this question similar do older people or do men snore more than other people you know i didn't look that one up particularly i would say overall it's probably pretty similar um i think as we get older probably just because of muscle tone Mm -hmm. decreasing a little bit in our bodies that's a lot of what creates snoring is the soft palate in the back of your mouth dropping a little bit so decreased muscle tone may create uh more snoring and so i think probably as you get older there is more snoring um male to female ratio i mean we always hear about the men who snores and and it may be that they just snore louder than women (laughs) i'm not positive about the statistics on that but i do know that both men and women snore quite a bit it's actually a pretty common thing yeah it's not always a bad thing either no i mean it just is it's just a mechanism of the body it's just trying to determine whether your snoring is is not good (laughs) well there's that yeah (laughs) well you mentioned muscle tone let's talk about this question will my muscle turn to fat if i quit weight training no oh good right well that's what i was wondering too because i haven't been weight training as much as i used to well you're a crossfit person too. i am oh my goodness yeah so um what will happen is your muscles that have hypertrophied and gotten bigger will just reduce in size Mm -hmm. now if you quit exercising you may develop a in a higher fat ratio then mm-hmm. uh, to fat to lean muscle ratio um, but you know the muscle isn't going to turn to fat I think what happens That's is a lot of people quit exercising the muscle mass decreases the fat mass increases so it <laughs> feels like you're 
fattier, you know? Um, But so if you decide you don't want to weight train as much anymore, that's okay. Just keep up the exercise in general and keep your weight stable. Makes sense. And that should be okay. (laughs) Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, another kind of interesting one we got was, does holding your breath really get rid of the hiccups? So that, that is an interesting one. It can. Um, there's <laughs> Hiccups are an interesting thing that we don't what even know. hiccups? Well, it's a reflexive kind of um, movement of the diaphragm, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of like a, in a way, it's kind of like a twitch, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but a big one of that big muscle. Um, and so if you, there's something about holding your breath that can help for many types of hiccups, but there are some that are kind of neurologically mediated. So these are people mm-hmm. that get hiccups that can't get rid of them like oh, for no. days. Yeah. Um, that's a whole different story. But for general hiccups, holding your breath, it kind of just separates something in the diaphragm and, and the muscles there. So um, it does tend to help. It's, it's something that if you can just hold your breath for a little bit, sometimes those hiccups will go away. Sure. Well, I, I do love the questions we get on the show, especially on the health myths one. Um, do I lose most of my body heat through my head? Um, you lose a fair amount. And again, I don't know. I don't know most of it. It's going to be through any appendages. Okay. So hands, head, um, even breathing. Of course, mm-hmm. we lose a lot of, of our heat through breath. Um, but yeah, I mean, your head is just kind of, it's up there. Wind is going by. So there's that convection, you know, (laughs) you know, all these ways in which we lose heat. If you're bald, it probably matters too. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't have that Mm -hmm. protection. I mean, cause having hair is in a way like having a hat. And of course, you know, with babies, of course, what's the first thing they do? Slap a hat on them because they don't do a really great job at um, managing their, their temperatures when they're just born. So yeah, you do, you can lose a fair amount through your head. Um, I I don't know the percentage compared to the other, but covering your head, if you get cold easily or if you're going somewhere cold is probably a good idea. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, speaking of weather related, this sure. question is, do I really need sunscreen if the sun mm-hmm. isn't out? Yes, for the most part. I mean, there's some situations in where you wouldn't, but it would be hard to know. So there's like indexes that they give you like oh, yeah, one, yeah. two, three, mm-hmm. four. That mean nothing uh, to any of us. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think at level one, two, sunscreen isn't needed. But what you have to remember is that it's not the sun per se, it's the UV rays. So right. you can have UV rays coming through even if it's not sunny. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I think some of the worst sunburns I've gotten is when I'm fishing right. <laughs> and it looks overcast. Right. I've, okay. I've, the worst burns I've had is when it looks cloudy. Yeah. And I'll be like, yeah, yeah. maybe sitting out at the lake or something. But. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, the recommendation generally is every time you go outside, put sunscreen on uh, sun-exposed areas. That's just going to be the general recommendation. I hate to spring this one on you, so Mm -hmm. if you can't answer it, I totally Mm -hmm. get it. But when you get like tinted moisturizer that has SPF Mm -hmm. in it, Mm -hmm. is it the same quality of SPF that you're getting if you just put on a regular sunscreen? Do you know? It'll work. I mean, quality, I guess quality versus... um, what's in it. So there's some issues about toxicity and those sorts of things mm-hmm. and, and which, which types of chemicals are better than others for sunscreen. And I think overall, most people would say that a physical barrier is better than just a, um, a chemical barrier. And by that, I mean things like zinc, okay. things that have zinc mm-hmm. in them. Um, that's like a more physical barrier versus like these other chemicals that they sure. use. Um, so it, I think it depends on what is creating the SPF, what's creating the, the, the blockage in there. And a lot of times if it's minerals and those sorts of things, I think those are considered pretty great. Um, but if it, tells, if it says it's an SPF of 30, then it should be an SPF of 30 or 45. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. It's just what goes into making it is probably more about how safe is it. You know, some people are really particular about that for what they consider safety of what goes on sure, their body. Sure, sure. Yeah. 
well, along the same lines, what about deodorant? Because people are asking a lot, is deodorant harmful? And it's the same thing. It's the chemicals. Is it blocking? Does it have metal? So this is one of those that I would say um, there's some controversy about this one because theoretically, um, putting aluminum Mm -hmm. on your body... You know, there's never been any real evidence that it causes a problem, but I think theoretically people say, you know, gosh, I mean, could that potentially be an issue? And it really came out, I'll be honest with you, because most breast cancers are in the upper outer quadrant Mm -hmm. of the breast. And so that's where they became really concerned. And so they started actually doing biopsies of skin tissues uh, in that area. And they were finding that there was some aluminum that was deposited underneath the skin. And so the idea is like, um, is that now is that really what is potentially you know causing more cancers the consensus is no overall no um i think it's one of those things that i would say no with the idea of let's keep our minds open Mm -hmm. and again when we talk about um risk and and harm and that sort of thing is there any harm in using a natural deodorant Right. Mostly not, although some people say baking powder, like ones that have baking powder yeah. in them, can mm-hmm. cause rashes and irritation. Mm-hmm. So you got to be careful about that. Um, is there any harm in not using deodorant at well, all? I was going to ask you, do we really need it aside from a smelling factor? It's right? really a social construct. Yeah, it is, actually. Right? Yeah. And then remembering, too, that deodorant and um, and antiperspirant are different. So the aluminum piece is generally the antiperspirant mm-hmm. that keeps you from sweating. Mm-hmm. And then the deodorant piece is really just what kind of makes you smell good. Right. So the smelling good part has been a little bit less controversial than the aluminum piece for the antiperspirant. So if you can find a deodorant alone, you know, you may want to opt for that as well. But yeah, I mean, there's no downside necessarily (laughs) to not using a deodorant other than social stuff. Yeah, exactly. Social stuff. Um, But there really isn't any solid evidence that's been presented in any good studies that would say that there's real significant problem with using a deodorant and um, even with nicks and cuts so that was the big okay, question that was if you have out. any you know women shaving mm-hmm. getting nicks and cuts and that sort of thing um, even then they're saying not enough aluminum would de- be deposited to cause a problem and aluminum overall has been found to be pretty safe in in any way that you know like pans and that sort sure. of thing um, you'd have to take in quite a bit quite of aluminum to the point of eating it. Let's not lick it every day, right? Right. Well, I, I mean, basically, they talked about eating, like eating oh. quantities of aluminum to make it toxic. I mean, you'd have to eat yeah, yeah. it. Huh. So, um, again, I'd keep my mind open on that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now, it doesn't look like there's anything that would say you should uh, sure. not use it. Well, you just mentioned shaving, and that was a question we got, and I don't know if we gave it to you, but <laughs> do women need to shave? Is it bad to shave? Like, does, mm-hmm. is the hair we're supposed to have there for a reason? It really doesn't make any difference one way or the other, except for in how you do it, uh, how Uh, you remove the hair. So, um, you know, there's some inherent risks to shaving or waxing Mm -hmm. or those sorts of things. They can increase your risks of infections, Mm -hmm. basically is it, kind of sort of bottom line. Good to know. Yeah, so so be careful there. (laughs) But otherwise, I mean, keep your hair, don't keep your hair. There's no reason also to remove it. I mean, there's there's no significant benefit for removal Mm -hmm. as well, so... There's that. Do you stop growing hair over time? Like, do women in their 60s not have to shave anymore? Um, it all depends. Um, it depends on the woman. Um, I think hair growth thins on, mm-hmm. on, on in all places where hair grows sure, as you sure. get older. Um, but usually it doesn't stop growing completely. Um, it, it, people with vascular problems, that's one of the first things they might notice, or one of the things they, not maybe the first, but one of the things they could notice is decreased hair growth on their legs. So oh, that's an okay. interesting thing, too. If all of a sudden somebody's not growing hair on their legs, right. you know, we actually look at that in regards to uh, poor vascular health in, in, in people as okay. they get older. 
Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue debunking or at least answering the questions that you have around common health myths. Am I the only one who's been mistaken? Cause you're the only one who keeps me waiting. Do you know how much time I would be saving if I didn't let you into my head? Let you into my head. Oh, no. back with Talk with the Doc today with our guest, Marianne Dunlap, and we are talking about health myths. So let's get right back to it. Can you make up for lost sleep by sleeping all day one weekend? No. 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 It's it's not that it's not fun. <laughs> and it, it, it's fine to do. It's fine to do. You know, it's not going to um, hurt anything to sleep extra one day. Although there is some evidence that sleeping you know, of course, extra short, you know, anything mm-hmm. sort of less than six hours mm-hmm. on a regular basis or anything longer than 10 hours on a regular basis can can have some potential health consequences. Um, but overall, you you know, you will catch up with a regular. I guess the point is, is if you just slept your regular night's mm-hmm. sleep, your eight to 10 hours of good sleep, you'll catch it up 
that's kind of resets. It right? just resets. Yeah, yeah it, it really does. I, I average three to four hours a night, and everybody tells me, "Oh, that'll catch up to you. You'll end up with lost years over time." Well, I mean, statistics would show that that's probably not Darn the healthiest it. for you, Mary. Well, it's not like I do it by choice. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, but no, I mean, overall, that's probably not. I mean, but. There's things we do every day. Every single person does things that aren't the healthiest for us every single day. And if that's your thing, I mean, you can work on it, (laughs) but it's not, you know, it's, it's, we all do things every single day that aren't the best for us. So we can't pick on you. I figure if I don't sleep as much, but I go for a run four days a week, that has to like maybe balance out over time. I don't know. We all do. Let me think it We all have habits, right? We do. We do. Uh, Well, this one I thought was really fascinating. If I get wet and I stay wet, will I catch a cold? No. Okay, that one was interesting. <laughs> no, that one's... Where does uh, that come from, I wonder? Again, it was probably an observation over time back in the day that people who got wet, um, you know, and stayed wet sure. got sick. Sure. And so I think, you know, the idea is that I think if you get wet and cold, it taxes your immune system. Well, sure. I mean, everything taxes your immune system right. that isn't just perfection. But yeah, I mean, you know, so that may have been part of the issue. But overall, if you go out and walk around in the rain, come in, get dried off. And the other thing is you may feel cold. And I think some people, you know, like if you get cold and chilled, Sugary. some people mm-hmm. assume, oh, I'm getting sick. Right. So that's probably where that all comes from. But no. Well, speaking of immune deficiencies, uh, is B12 good for immune deficiency? Do I need to take it? No, no. you don't need to. Um, there's some things that B12 is good for, and there are some people that have deficiencies in B12, particularly people who don't digest well. Mm. You know, we talked about people that have celiac disease mm-hmm. or people that have had gastric bypass, for instance. There's a lot of different reasons why people can develop a problem, and what they'll sometimes get is anemia from that. And so um, if you think you might have a problem, it's easy to get a B12 test done. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't need B12, but there certainly are some people that benefit from it. And if you have issues like, um, I would say, um, neuropathy, for instance, you know, um, you, what does that mean for those yeah, listening? Yeah, right. So I was just going to say, uh, neuropathy would be where you get unusual sensations, typically in the feet and legs, but oh, it can huh. be in the hands as well. It might feel like bee stings or numbness and tingling, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And it happens not because of something like you tied your shoe too tight. Um, it, it just is there all the time or present a lot of the time. As a first workup for that, we might look at B12 as well. It seems okay. to have some you know, neurological components to it as well. But again, most people do not need additional B12. And if you think you have a problem that, that is a deficiency of B12, just let your provider know. And they can usually do a test pretty simply to let you know. Perfect. Um, what about teas? So we have a lot of people asking about oolong and green tea for weight loss. Mm-hmm. Is there a magic weight loss tea? <laughs> Not a magic weight loss tea, but there is some evidence that teas can be helpful. Again, it's I don't know that that would be any more helpful than drinking coffee. I mean, the caffeine does have some appetite suppressant effect and can create increased energy. And so I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. Is it going to provide a significant amount of additional weight mm-hmm. loss to just calorie restriction? Um, but it may help you um, get in that workout in sure. at 4 p.m. after you've had a long day. Right. You know, a little cup of tea might give you a little boost of energy, and it's not bad for you. Again, uh, it's the looking at risk benefit. You know, right, is there anything right. wrong with doing that? No. I would I would say a cup of tea would be much better than an energy drink or an energy shot. Right. right. right? So um, green tea may have some antioxidant effects, which may um, you know again out there a little bit. But there's some question about some anti-cancer and antioxidant right, right. Uh, effects with green tea. So it's seen as an overall pretty healthful drink. And probably not a detriment to take green tea or oolong, right? No, unless you have caffeine issues. If you're caffeine sensitive, just be aware of that. Okay. That's it. 
That right. would be the only drawback, caffeine sensitivity. Well, another topic I think that maybe is risk versus non-risk mm-hmm. is can I get cancer from x-rays? And I, I don't know the answer to that, but I also mm-hmm. feel like not getting x-rays means you might not know you have some sickness, right? Sure. Well, as we know, you know, a mammogram is an x-ray, a, a bone density test. These are all important screening tests. They have x-rays involved. And then even worse, probably, are CT scans and that mm-hmm. sort of thing for x-ray exposure, um, a radiation exposure, I should say. Um, you know, overall, though, we do try to limit any test because there is some risk of cancer with um, increasing uh, exposure to radiation. Right. Um, it's just one of those things that, um, generally speaking, we are not going to recommend tests that um, are going to harm you unless that benefit of that test right. is way beyond the risk of harm to you. Um, the other thing to note is that there's certainly again, this hierarchy of, of radiation exposure. So, you know, dental x-rays, very low on the right. radiation exposure risk. Uh, chest x-rays even, really low on the radiation. Mammogram, same thing. Um, you start to go up with um, maybe back x-rays, things that need ex- uh, longer exposures, you know, okay. so like spinal mm-hmm. x-rays, things like that. Um, and then really your real risk probably lies in things like CT scans and that sort of thing. And of course, we really do try to minimize those down to what's absolutely necessary uh, because uh, multiple CT scans can can start to get into a, some risk. Good to know. Yeah. So, so just always talk to your provider if you have any concerns about that and just ask them, you know, what is my risk here? Sure. But general x-rays not usually a huge big deal, especially for the amount that people would get them in in a general setting. It's like you're going every day. Right. (laughs) Um, This one's interesting. Do I ice and heat and then heat and ice? Do I go on and off? What's Mm -hmm. best for injury? That changes a lot too. And it changes on who you, you know, it's going to depend on who you talk to. A lot of people say no heat, no ice, just leave it. Oh, really? That's, that's not an uncommon thing to hear now. It's just, don't worry about the heat and the ice. Again, I think, you know, it's, is there harm mm-hmm. is, you know, when right. there might be some potential benefit. And I would say the benefit lies primarily in how it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. Is it going to uh, make that injury go away faster? Possibly not. But does it make you feel better? So um, does it soothe the joint? Does it right. take away the pain? Um, in that case, probably the, the best idea if you're going to do it, I would say uh, do a heat first, ice second, um, just because, you know, want to bring blood flow to the area first and then sort of quiet it down, you know, and and cool it off second, you know, kind of quiet, quiet that joint down a little bit. Um, Some people find heat to be certain injuries like muscles would be a little bit more comfortable. And then ice is a little more uncomfortable, but ice tends to help a lot with just pain, straight up pain. And then, yeah. And then athletes are going to be a little different story. So, you know, definitely follow your train. If you're a high level athlete, you're going to want to follow your trainer's guidelines because, you know, those folks definitely do do some serious icing and that sort of thing to help prevent injury. So this is for, right. Yeah. I did one the other day. Oh gosh. Mm -mm. It was brutal. Um, But yeah. So, so if you're just a general, you know, sort of worker outer and you injure something, um, you know, maybe a little heat, little ice and and don't leave it on too long, you know, 10, 15 minutes. You know, that sort of thing and alternate that way. When it melts. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, yeah, that, that's not good. We did did we just create a new word, worker outer? Because I kind of like that. I'm going to use that. Did I that. say worker outer? I, th- I love oh. it. I love it. Let's we'll add it to my that. list of Marianne words that nobody else uses, like funner. <laughs> oh, funner's the best. Is it a real word, though? It is now. Okay. You heard it here. You heard it here. Um, okay. So how about this one? We're going to go into detoxing and juicing. Okay. Is detoxing really necessary? No. Your liver and your kidneys will do it for you. 
We have built-in detoxers. We do. Do do you like to detox, let's say? I mean, Mary, Mm -hmm. do you like to detox? No. Okay. Some people love it. Mm -mm. And if they do it and they want to just, you know, drink some juice or drink some concoction for 24 hours Mm -hmm. or whatever, and they feel like it's going to be, you know, like some celery juice and this and that. I mean, is that going to hurt you? Not likely. (laughs) Not likely. Um, But it's not necessary, no. Absolutely not necessary. And is juicing of any value in general? And I feel like it is if you're not getting vegetables on a regular basis and this is your source of vegetables, but in most juices, aren't they actually taking out all of the fiber and nutrients? Nutrients are in there, but fiber is not. And so eating the whole vegetable or the whole fruit is probably the best idea. Juicing, I mean, again, is it going to hurt you? Probably not, unless you have some sugar issues and mm-hmm. or, you know, and you're doing a lot of uh, fruit it juices. might hurt your that pocketbook. An, <laughs> but fruit juices, it can be a little troublesome for folks, yeah. you know, and they can co- increase weight gain because they're high, high in sugar content. They have a lot of great nutrients, but just eat the fruit. Yeah. Eat the fruit. And if, you, if you're juicing veggies, I mean, I, I can see a little more mm-hmm. gain there from nutrients. But again, you're not getting the whole yeah. benefit. You know? I mean, I know people who won't eat their vegetables, but they'll drink a juice, a mm-hmm. vegetable juice. Okay, go for it, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's going to get you some nutrients. Yeah. You know. Well, speaking of lack of nutrients, does eating a, grease, a greasy breakfast after a hangover make it better? Not really. <laughs> And neither does he drink hair of the dog. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> no. no. Is there anything good for a hangover? Is it just fluids? Is it? It's primarily fluids and just rest. Yeah. I mean, hangovers. Hangovers are tough. It's the body saying you you poisoned me yeah, a little bit. Right? Speaking know? of detox needs, <laughs> right? You kind of messed me up, and uh, I don't feel so great now. So really, I mean, the idea is you you want to. I know. Again, it sounds like when we say drink a bunch of water to flush it out, that yeah. sounds again like we're saying detox. It's not really flushing it out. It's yeah. just stay hydrated yeah. to make sure your cells are all functioning at sure. their best possible level. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> Let's see. Oh, can you get the flu from getting a flu shot? No, no way. We actually had a whole separate show on flu shots mm-hmm. and the benefit. And that was one of the questions we kept getting from people. Yeah. Um, and I think what the doctor there said was that sometimes either you got the flu shot too late, so you already had been exposed mm-hmm. to it and you're experiencing that, or it's just a mild ache or something that you mistake for uh, a flu. Yeah. So, um, and that happened to me. I actually um, just procrastinated getting my flu shot. And uh, currently, I was working in the immediate care clinics at the time that this happened. Bad decision. Oh, gosh. It was a horrible <laughs> day. I just didn't, th- I just wasn't planning well. Busy. But anyway, I came back from Christmas um, and every single person that walked through that door had the flu. Mm. So I said in desperation, do you guys have any flu shot here? Went ahead and took uh, a flu shot and ended up getting the flu. But it was from exposure, obviously. And so the other thing I would say is that it is true that people can have an immune response where their body is actually working on creating antibodies. Mm -hmm. And that can make you feel a little punky. You know what I mean? That's possible. But it's not going to make you feel like the flu. I will attest to that. Having had the flu, it Mm -hmm. was not good. (laughs) It's miserable. I had it It a few years ago. The only year I didn't get a flu shot, I got the flu. And it was miserable. Same thing. And it was miserable. I you know, I had always seen like on TV where people say, I'd rather just die. I actually said I would rather just die. And it was a little dramatic, but I was well, miserable. My drama was I need a Percocet. <laughs> and, I, and I actually laughed because I thought I'm not walking into the immediate care clinic telling them I have the flu. I need a Percocet. That's I, But I hurt so bad. I felt like I yeah, it was, I'm not oh, kidding. It was not fun. No, no good. Never no wanted good. again. Um, I have another random one for you. Um, is putting butter on a burn okay for the burn? So I think if you have properly 
um, watered it down. So if you've run it under cold water mm-hmm. and you're sure that the skin is no longer burning and it's mm-hmm. a mild burn. So we're talking like first degree right, burn here, right. you know, maybe a little teeny blister, but not much more than that. Mm-hmm. You didn't lose skin. Um, water it down first, get it under cold water, stop the burning from occurring. After that, if a little bit of butter or coconut oil makes it feel a little better, I don't see how that's going to hurt you as long as you don't have a broken broken open skin. Open I mean, skin, okay. Right, you don't want to put it on an open skin wound. But I mean, if it creates a barrier, the idea is you could put Vaseline on it, whatever. Uh, okay. You know, it, that's creating a physical barrier that's not allowing the air to hit it and it makes it hurt less. Even mm-hmm. a bandage of sorts would do the same thing. But, but yeah, that's really what you're doing with that. Stopping the air. Yeah, stopping, it. yeah. Physical barrier. How about this one? Because I know you're a CrossFit person and you also (laughs) run. Is doing HIIT training over longer form workouts actually better for you? Um, There's some evidence that it probably has some some benefit. Again, it's what your goals are. You know what I mean? So it's going to, the thing about it that's nice is you can also incorporate some strength training in an interval type Mm -hmm. situation. So you can put some burpees in there. You can put some push-ups in there. You can put pull-ups in there. Um, And those are going to be strengthening, strength training along with your cardio all together in one shortened version of a workout it also creates increased heart rate variability Mm -hmm. and there's some benefit cardiovascularly to that both in heart health as well as um your endurance so it can be a good training for running Mm -hmm. you know so do you have to train to run a 10k by running 10ks and running not not completely you can do some interval training and it'll be it's a good training method for running as well so it's a good cross training method says the woman who runs 10ks Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's amazing i love it i can do a 5k and that's that's my max well i know you could do a 10k but we'll talk about that (laughs) my brain doesn't know we'll talk about that later (laughs) awesome well marianne thank you for joining us today and everyone for listening and sending in your questions we look forward to future topics with more experts from providence make sure to follow us on social media at psjh on twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. Thanks for listening.